Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doing at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. By the way, Aaron, I, we got a note from a, a listener, Ron Adams, who's, who's taking me to task because the best I can do in describing this division of the company is the one of the more interesting. Ron's arguing for, for dynamic or, or super for superheroes. What do you think? Do we need to change the intro? You know, shaking it up is always good to, to freshen up an old stale thing. So, yeah, we could always find a new adjective to put in that place. I'm all for it. Okay. Tell you what, Ron, we'll, we'll take it under advisement and try to find something here. Anyway, I, I'm sorry, I blew the intro here. I'm, I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and the deep professional voice that you just heard is my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and we're recording this on Monday, August 12, 2019, and kind of a momentous night in, on the Marvel side of the fence. Uh, the very last episode of Legion airs on FX tonight. At 10 o'clock Eastern and Pacific, and then at the stroke of midnight, the physical version of Avengers Endgame, the Blu-ray and the DVD, go on sale. Mm -hmm. And UPS rolled up the driveway early today and dropped off my review copy. And as soon as Aaron and I finish recording tonight, Alice and Mai's plan is that we're going to try to catch the series finale for Legion, and then at least watch some of the special features on Endgame, because again, it's a three-hour and, and two-minute-long movie. And then tonight is the Perseid meteor, right, uh, meteor showers. Oh, you got an awesome night planned. Yeah. I will tell you that their director's commentary and, and writer's commentary there on that track is mm -hmm. actually one of the more entertaining and informative tracks I've heard in quite a while. I don't think there was a lot of dead material in that one where someone didn't have something to put forth that was either entertaining to find out or informative to find out. So uh, it is an incredibly long movie, but if you are uh, someone that likes to watch something over and over and then find out how it's done in the background, it, it is a very good commentary. Now, I'm assuming, given the way you're talking, that... that uh, yes, you, I did. <laughs> I very you, much you, did. You got your, now, did you get the high-def 4K version or... Yeah, no, see, here's the thing. Apple and uh, Disney are not seeing eye to eye on that. And mm. in a normal circumstance, if I buy something on my 4K Apple TV, if the 4K mm. version is available, I get it for free at no additional charge. So okay. I'll get the 4K content for the same 20 bucks I'd pay for HD. That's great. But Disney holds their brand at a premium. And mm -hmm. if you're going to buy the 4K, they want the additional 10 or $15 to go along with that 4K. And so even though I purchased it the, at midnight when it was first available, it is only a standard HD copy, which I'm okay with because, I mean, it's, it's not about the pixels. It's about the story. And I enjoy I the story. And uh, one day I'll, I'll get a hard copy that's 4K. But for right now, I had to get my fix. This is how Disney does business, because frankly, it costs a lot of money to build Galaxy's Edge. I'll so. tell you what, Jim, if, it just as a comparison point, and I do use an Apple TV, but if you go in the store, mm -hmm. all the Marvel movies from Iron Man on are like a flat 20 bucks. All the Star Wars movies, like A New Hope, that's a $20 movie to them. That hasn't aged. It hasn't lost any value in their mind. That is just mm -hmm. as much a brand new movie price as you know something that came out last week whereas any other motion picture company after it's been out for a couple weeks, i mean i can get aquaman for like nine bucks right mm -hmm. aquaman's not that old 
Oh, and God. and so it, that does really let you know how Disney values and sees their brand, and they won't let another company knock down the price tag because they want to have a sale. They just won't allow it. So it, it is a good examination of, of the Disney company and how they treat their product. Interesting. Okay, folks. Now, uh, Aaron and I have been talking about Avengers Endgame for more than a year at this point. And I think people are kind of burned out of the box office aspect of this. So I thought, I'm hoping that this is the last time we're going to talk at length about Endgame for a while, Aaron. So I was deliberately digging around for some fun stories, you know, some fun little weird aspects of this Russo Brothers movie. And if you think uh, this is the last time we're talking about Endgame, I have no idea how we're going to fill the next year until another movie comes out. (laughs) I mean, I just, I think, I I think just at the point, how much time do we devote to, oh, it's $6 million past Avatar at this point. It's like, who cares? Well, all right, let's start with Captain Marvel. And a lot of the fans were like, well, wait a minute. She's the most powerful character, arguably, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So why didn't Carol Danvers play a bigger part in this penultimate film of the Infinity Saga? And the Russo brothers, as part of their sort of publicity tour, you know, out there flogging the the Blu-ray and the DVD, they were just flat out about this film, Avengers Endgame, was supposed to be the finale film for the original six Avengers. And that's how they sculpted the story. They were out to conclude a 10-year saga involving these characters, and and Carol is a a relatively new character. And Kevin Feige has sort of very broadly hinted that going forward, Carol Danvers is going to pick up Iron Man's mantle as the head of the MCU. And so that then became the balancing act. So we're paying tribute to our first six Avengers, but at the same time have to make sure that Carol is properly positioned to sort of take on the leadership role going forward. So that's why they gave her such significant moments in the film. I mean, she's the one who rescues Tony when he's floating dead in space. Also, you know, and I didn't really realize this was a callback till somebody pointed it out. But you know how in the original Captain Marvel movie, there's that scene where Rowan the Accuser is sort of looking out of the bridge and Captain Marvel takes out one of the Kree bombers by Mm -hmm. just sort of flying through it. And you get to see her do the exact same thing to Thanos' ship in the third act of Endgame. She's been off the canvas for... A good portion of the film at that point, almost two hours, if, it, if, it, if what I've heard is correct. So that would technically make it two times in Endgame that they have mirrored another moment from another movie in Endgame. I'm so glad you brought that up because you sent that clip along today. Can you explain what you're talking about? Yeah, as we're talking about mirroring things from other movies, at the end of Avengers Infinity War, we all remember where Thanos goes and sits on his step and he puts his hands on his elbows and he looks out over a grateful universe and smiles and then we get end credits. Well, someone online has now taken a a version of Endgame where Thanos is defeated right after the snap and put that right alongside the shot from Infinity War. And what you find is Thanos takes a couple steps over to a boulder, 
the exact same two steps practically as he took over to his steps uh, in Infinity War. He sits down, he puts his hands on his knees, and he looks out, but instead of a grateful universe, this time, instead of smiling, he turns to dust. And it's the moment where he starts to turn to dust that the original Infinity War would cut to black and, and go to credits. But the way that the camera moves around Thanos in that clip, the way that he moves to something and sits down and the way he sits and the way that he looks are all very, very, very much a mirror of that very last scene in Infinity War. And to see him side by side really emphasizes how much time they took to make sure those two shots mirrored one another. And I think it's a, a brilliant job. Got to admire the craft or yeah. something like that. You know, just bookending that portion of the story. So... Okay, moving on to our next interesting question. That's, what year does Steve Rogers return to when he time travels so he can be with Peggy Carter? And according to Captain America, the, the first Avengers, when we see Captain America crash that Hydra mega bomber in the North Atlantic, it's 1945. It's the waning days of the war. Now, my problem with that being the number, and that's the number that's out there, is the, the war in Europe, VE Day, was in 44, wasn't it? I don't know. I'm not a history buff, so I'm lacking okay. in that knowledge. And the, the war in Japan ended in 45. So suddenly I'm questioning my own math here. But okay, according to official Marvel stuff that's out there, the plane goes down in 45. Now, if we jump to the Agent Carter series, season one, which was set in 1946. I uh, had Peggy in New York working for the Strategic Science Reserve. Season two, it was it set the following year, uh, 1947, in Southern California, with Peggy transferring to the Los Angeles office of the SRR. And as far as the screenwriters of Endgame were concerned, what happened on ABC's Agent Carter was canon to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So they had to take the events depicted in those two seasons of this television show into account when they were writing the sequel to Avengers Infinity Wars. So this is what Christopher Marcus had to say about the matter. He, he said, look, there was just a period in world history from about 1948 to now where there were two Steve Rogers. And anyway, for a big chunk of that time, one of them was frozen in, in ice, so it, it wasn't like they'd be running into one another. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Marcus and McFeely also wrote the screenplay for Captain America Winter Soldier. There's a scene in that film where Steve Rogers goes to visit the now elderly Peggy Carter in a hospital. You know, she's basically on her deathbed, and she's sort of in and out of being lucid, and she talks about after his plane went into the ice, she mourned for a couple of years, and then she eventually married and had two children. But McFeely, talking with The Hollywood Reporter, recently said, it was always our intention that Steve Rogers was the father of these two children. You know, there are time travel loopholes for that. And he concluded this by saying, it does introduce the idea that there are two children that have somewhat super soldier DNA. And... You are not happy with this. Well, you know. I'm not overly impressed with the idea because it kind of breaks all the rules that they set up for time travel in Endgame because, mm -hmm. you know, Hulk gives you the quick synopsis of all the time travel movies you've seen are garbage. You, that's mm -hmm. not how time travel works. If they were to go by Endgame rules, Peggy on her deathbed should not be aware 
in this reality that she has had children with Steve. Mm-hmm. She just shouldn't know that because that event has not happened yet. Steve has not had the ability to go back in time and have those children. So it would have to be one of those alternate dimension type situations or something. But mm-hmm. yeah, it just don't quite jive with what they did in Endgame. So whatever. I mean, if they want to feel like they did, they did a clever thing, it's not like it's the most important piece of information in the MCU where everything hinges upon whether it's a valid thing or not. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, whatever. If you think it's clever, fine. If not, I don't have to agree with it. It's it's fine. Marcus and McFeely, while they were putting together the screenplay for Endgame, this is the finale film for these six characters. And there should be some moments here that fans have been waiting for. And we all have been have talked about this since Captain America, uh, the first Avenger, came out in 2011. It's like he's on a plane. Don't planes have parachutes? You know, why would he have to ditch the... Couldn't he just set the plane on a crash course and then jump out? Well, hold on. I'll, we'll go one step further than that. We have yep. seen Captain America probably several times by now, jump out of an airplane without a parachute, land in the water, and be perfectly okay. As a matter of fact, I think it was in Captain America Winter Soldier where they're like, did he just jump out of the airplane without a parachute? And Black Widow's like, yep. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, uh, couldn't he just jump out without a parachute and still be fine? But this is the thing. They actually wrote a scene where Rhodey, at one point, is talking with Steve Rogers and just said, you know, you're on a plane. There wasn't a parachute on the entire plane. They talk about how the scene got cut out of the movie, but you were saying that you think you saw it on the extra features? or Yeah, because when you were talking about that, it was like, that seems awfully familiar, like I've just seen that in the last week or so. And it was either a deleted scene or it was mentioned in the commentary about something that was lifted out. Because they do talk about a lot of the alternate takes of what they did. Um, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there is that one feature where they had written subterfuge into certain scripts Mm-hmm. So, for example, instead of Loki taking the Tesseract and disappearing, he would, you know, trip down some stairs or, or whatever. It just didn't make any sense, but it didn't matter. It wasn't what really happened. Mm-hmm. And so they would have these moments in the movie where, or these uh, moments of special features where you could see them acting out things that were in these fake scripts that were never intended to be in the movie. And they'll do cute little cartoons to act it out and whatnot, but... Yeah, there, there's some See? cool special features in there. Okay, I'm, I'm going straight for those once we finish this, this recording session. Now, put on your thinking caps, folks. We have a math challenge for you. It's like, how old was the old Steve Rogers that we saw at the end of Endgame? So let, let me give you the info that you should have here. Steve Rogers, when he joins the Army in 42, and Steve Rogers is supposedly 27, in 1945, when he ditches that Hydra Mega Bomber in the North Atlantic, and he's then preserved in ice for 70 years and revived in 2011. And as I understand it, Avengers Endgame supposedly ends in 2023, and that's to take into account the five-year time jump. Is that right? That's the information. I, I always assumed that it was uh, starting off in 2019, and then it had mm-hmm. a five-year time jump. But mm-hmm. you had said that, I don't know if the writers had said that it was 2018, yeah. and then, yeah, and then a five-year jump, so I had to redo my math by one. Okay, so near as I can figure, if you go by 
the time that Steve Rogers was actually awake, not frozen in the ice, that makes that character 39 years old when he time travels to return all the Infinity Stones. Now, we're not going to speculate how long that task actually took, but Steve returns to 1948, lives out his life with Peggy, and then meets up with Bucky, Bruce Banner, and the Falcon back in 2023. So that's 75 years later. That makes Steve 114. Now, mind you, let's talk about him being on ice and whether or not we count that. You, 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 Absolutely. You called, you called me on this earlier. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, if, right. if someone were to, heaven forbid, if someone were to fall into a coma for some reason at the age of 30, mm-hmm. and they remained in a coma for three years... And they got out of that coma after three years. Would they be selling, celebrating their thirtieth birthday or their thirty-third birthday? It would be their thirty-third, right? So, okay, it doesn't you matter how long he was in the ice. The world was mm-hmm. still traveling around the sun, and we count every single one of those trips. And boy, did he get the benefit of aging well out of that bad deal. I mean, that's the thing. If, if you if you do that, if you accept that that premise. He goes from being 114 years old to 184 super soldier serum. That's some good stuff. Yeah. Forget about the Propecia. This is the stuff we need to get our hands on. Absolutely. Okay. While we're talking about Cap time traveling, returning the Infinity Stones, this is the part that I found the most fascinating. Cap has been tasked with returning all of the Infinity Stones, which means that at some point, He's going to have to reclaim the Tesseract, which we watched Loki grab the Tesseract and sort of disappear wherever he disappeared to. And supposedly we're going to get to see him on the Loki limited series that will debut in 2021 on Disney+. Plus. But Steve's been tasked with correcting all the, the, the timelines. And this is straight from the directors of the movie. It's like, look... It gets very complicated, but it would be impossible for Cap to rectify the timeline unless he found Loki. So, well, first off, they've got the Tesseract that Stark had retrieved from a different timeline, a different point in time. So first, Steve restores that one because he Mm -hmm. has to. Yep. I would think that the Loki Tesseract after that would almost be optional because... It would remain in whatever time, because the timeline it is currently residing in is mm-hmm. the one that it is currently in. I mean, it's it's it was in the Avengers movie. It ends up in Loki's hands. If Loki buggers off to anywhere else, that doesn't change really the fate of anything, because that Tesseract never left the timeline it was in. It was the Stark one that left its timeline and had to be put back. But that still leaves us a Tesseract short. And in fact, what's, what's kind of funny is the screen writers also pointed out that there was a point in Asgard where the Aether mm-hmm. and the Tesseract were both there. The way they got around that is that it, initially there was language you know, to the effect of, oh, we'd have to break into Odin's vault and the lock is too difficult and we'll have to pick another time point to go for that. But right. you're not wrong, Aaron. The, the screenwriters were thinking along that those exact same lines. But but evidently, if you, if you take this into account, if you take in that Cap has got to find Loki to get back the Tesseract, the Space Stone, we had heard that story about how Marvel like, had talked with Chris Evans about how they really wanted him 
to come direct some episodes of, you know, the limited series that they were doing for Disney+. And if you take this information along with that, suddenly it gets really interesting. You know, maybe we haven't, in fact, seen the very last of Chris Evans' version of Captain America, Steve Rogers. I've just got the feeling that Kevin Feige's kind of luring him with some bait where he's like, here, step behind the camera. Let me let me show you. You can direct all of this Loki episode all by yourself. Hold on. Just grab this costume here. Put this on real quick. All right, now step to the <laughs> other side of the camera. All right, let me, let me get you doing a nice little thumbs up there. All right, now back to the other side. No, go ahead and direct it, but we just got to get that one little shot real quick. Yeah, yeah. I, I just have the feeling that they Disney would do anything to get Chris Evans in a Captain America costume for any reason. And so, uh, yeah, you want to direct an episode? Uh, just one little condition here. Put on this costume. We just need, you know, 50 seconds of good old Cap. Well, here's hoping. Here's hoping. Oh, and, and while we're talking about Cap and Loki and, and the world of Thor, final uh, fun little bit of info coming out from the press tour with, with the Russos and Marcus and McFeely. But, of course, everybody remembers that wonderful scene from the third act of of Endgame, where we had Cap wielding Milner and and Thor, like, I knew it! You know, which, of mm-hmm. course, was a throwback to that great little moment in Age of Ultron where they're all like, partying at Stark headquarters and the original six, you know, Avengers are being goofy and they're, you know, challenging each other to pick up Thor's uh, hammer. And the only one who can sort of move it is Steve Rogers. And, and there's that wonder, wonderful... Shot of Chris Hemsworth looking unnerved because it's like, oh my God, somebody else can 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 wield Milner or or move it. Joe Russo says, I think in Age of Ultron, Cap realized that he could move the point hammer, but he didn't pick it up because he didn't want to uh, embarrass Thor. But remember that the whole concept which they hammered home in that movie is only those who were worthy can wield Milner. And remember that wonderful moment where you realized that Vision actually was a hero because he picked up Milner and handed it to Thor? Right. And it's like, I am worthy. I am a hero. Let's get the hell out of here. We have things to do. Yeah, it was a very great. It was great shorthand. I don't have to prove anything. I can pick this up. Now let's go. Yeah, no, 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 wonderful storytelling. And and speaking of wonderful storytelling and Thor-related stories, when we get back from this commercial break, Aaron and I have some great stories to share from J. Michael Straczynski's brand-new terrific memoir, Becoming Super. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I don't need to tell regular listeners uh, of the Marvelous Disney podcast that Aaron is a huge fan of Neil Gaiman. We, you know, Absolutely. We, you know, and J. Michael Strakinsky's book, which is called Becoming Superman, My Journey from Poverty to Hollywood, which stops along the way at murder, mayhem, madness, movie stars, cults, slums, sociopaths, and war crimes. I've been a fan of, of Joe's work 
forever. I mean, I was lucky enough in the, the early 90s to have a friend, Tom Ledbetter, who just blithered about uh, the Babylon 5 television series that was being syndicated at that point. And in fact, you know, one day a shoebox showed up at the house and Tom shared all of these seasons that he'd recorded, you know, back in the old VHS days, folks. And I just fell in love with the way that Joe told the story. But, you know, there were a lot of people who know and love Joe, and among them is is Neil Gaiman. And he actually wrote the introduction to this memoir. And, and I'm just pulled a quote here. I properly met Joe Straskinski in, I believe, January of 1991. He was hosting the Hour 25 radio show on KPKK-FM in Los Angeles, and Terry Pratchett and I were on the show that night to talk about our book, Good Omen. Before Joe arrived, the station boss came and warned Terry and me that she knew we were British people and that we liked to swear on the radio and that no swearing on our parts would be tolerated. We asked if it would be all right if to mention a fictional book in Good Omens called Bugger All This Bible, and she she went away and checked with the authorities and said, it was. And neither of us had ever sworn on any radio interview before, but now we're terrified that we would. And we did our entire interview convinced that at any moment a fit of something resembling Tourette syndrome would overtake us. Neil actually went on to work with Joe on Babylon 5. I want to say he wrote uh, an episode for the fifth season of the show called Day of the Dead that, that has, again, that, uh, that wonderful game and quality. So this hardcover book published by Harper Voyager in July of this year, July 23, it, it's an amazing book, folks. It, it's this passionate, involving read that tells you how, about having a career in writing, dealing with difficult family issues, wonderful behind-the-scenes entertainment stories. The reason I'm bringing it up tonight is that over the course of his career, Joe was recruited by Marvel to help relaunch Spider-Man. Here's a, a chunk from the book. In June of 2001, my first issue of The Amazing Spider-Man hit the stands. Uh, it was illustrated by the massively talented Joe Romita Jr., whose father was one of the original Silver Age Spider-Man artists. It, do you know either Romita's work, uh, I've, Aaron? Or? I've actually got the comics he's talking about. and. Oh. I love John's work and mm -hmm. Junior's work has got a quality that I'm not overly fond of. It's just very, very blocky and square. Like all the heads mm -hmm. are, are rectangles yeah. and, and the jaws are very, very square and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's just a style, but it's just one where I was just like, Hey, I wish you would have picked up your father's traits on this a little bit more, but he is a good artist overall. I mean, there's a lot of great qualities there. It's just that there's one thing where his characters are a bit square and blocky, and that uh, I was not as much of a fan of compared to other artists. Okay. Well, you know, Joe goes on to talk about what he did with the Spider-Man characters, and one of the changes he made, it was something he'd, he'd wanted to see in the books for decades, and that was... Peter's Aunt May had always been portrayed as this fragile, frail old woman who would fall over dead if she ever learned his secret, but I never bought into that sexist perspective for a second. This was a woman who had buried Peter's parents and her own husband and then raised a young boy alone. That takes courage, stamina, and a spine made of titanium. Peter may have gotten his powers from the spider that bit him, but he got his strength from Aunt May. 
So during my run, she finally discovers his secret, and not only does she not die, she embraces this side of his life and becomes his greatest ally. And I wanted to show that those who love us can carry the burden of our secrets and accept the truth of who we really are. So you've read this run of books, or oh yeah, Aaron? yeah, yeah, I've, I've got them in a in a box in a closet. Do you remember them as they came out? Were they they particularly startling? Or okay, so it, for my reading history, I'd always been an amazing Spider-Man collector. So it didn't matter what was happening; I would just buy it, and <laughs> I would read the stories. And if I enjoyed them or not, wasn't the issue. I just put them, you know, in in the box and collected them. Mm-hmm. But at that time, we had Ultimates. I think was coming out around that time. Mm-hmm. And that was, I want to say, the big refresh that I thought Marvel really needed because they were able to take all of the great stories that someone like me had read over decades and decades, and they mm-hmm. got to retell them with a new twist, or they got to tell a condensed version. They got to cherry pick what made this good, and how mm-hmm. can I tell that same story but add something fresh and new to it and give it a twist? And so I was collecting amazing reading it, putting it in a box, but I was thoroughly enjoying Ultimates around that time. Got it. Okay. Based on his work on The Amazing Spider-Man, that Joe talks about how he was invited to a Marvel Comics creative retreat in Manhattan where they worked out the story for the upcoming Civil War publishing event. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the material that they came up with at that retreat eventually got folded into the Captain America Civil War movie. So he talks about how, you know, they're on the second day of the retreat and things are winding down. And publisher Dan Buckley, as they're sort of closing things out, mentions that Marvel is looking after a, a two-year absence, and I didn't know he, this character was off the canvas for that long, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they were looking to bring Thor back. And as Joe explains, the problem was that no one knew what to do with him. Known for spouting corny-sounding semi-Chaucerian dialogue, Thor wore a costume that was stuck in the 60s, had a confusing mythology, and an nearly invincible power that made it difficult to put him in real jeopardy. On the other hand, being a kid who grew up on mythology, Shakespeare and the Bible, isn't. I knew exactly what to do with this character. So when you know Buckley asked for help, I raised my hand. I volunteered for the job, and Marvel then turned around and offered the job to Mark Milner, who, as Joe describes, you know, ran screaming out into the night. Next, emailed Neil Gaiman to ask if he'd like to tackle the book, and it's not Neil's style to say no way because he's a gentleman. But were you to run his reply through the polite British person to Americanese translation system, the response would be, no f-ing way. And so, <laughs> so finally, almost reluctantly, they said, fine, let Straskinski have a shot at it. And so they start asking him about what they, he wants to do with the character. And he said, well, first of all, I want to shift Thor's diction to something that's easier on the ears, more Christopher Fry than Shakespeare also want to work with an artist to modernize his costume and and so the editors at marvel say we don't have a problem with this and so but what about asgard you know no one ever knows what to do with asgard do you want to put it back in a norse setting up in the sky in another dimension and joe says no i want to put asgard in oklahoma <laughs> and so a silence it's deep in space hung in the air for a moment is it you you want to do what and it's like look Thor standing beside Iron Man or Spider-Man isn't much of a contrast. They've all got major powers. But Thor in a small town makes him more godlike, while prox- close proximity to ordinary people will humanize Thor, make him more relatable. 
in classic mythology, the gods were often roaming freely among the people. You'd be crossing a field and run into Diana or Odin or, or Dionysus. They were practically your neighbors. So there's, there's plenty of precedents for this. And it's like the editors are, yeah, but Oklahoma? And right. it's like, oh, the vision. Yeah, the visual contrast will be great. I mean, it will be flat, 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 Asgard. Flat, 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 flat. Yeah, they thought I was nuts, but to their credit, they went along with it. And the first issue, my first issue of Thorlands in September 2007 with a redesigned costume, new pro-shoes dialogue, and Asgard firmly set in Oklahoma. And the book immediately sold out, and every issue thereafter was in the top ten of comics published that month. Do you remember this run at all, or when they they did this, Aaron? No, actually, uh, you know, this is all pre-MCU, and back in those days, Thor was not Mm -hmm. the biggest name in the MCU. Mm -hmm. Iron Man really wasn't all that... I mean, they all had their followers. Everybody's Mm -hmm. a fan of of something. So Mm -hmm. it's not to, you know, smack talk them, but as far as the sales of the comics went... Thor, it was not all that high all the time. And mm-hmm. it took like a major shakeup or a crossover event or some other things like that to make them pop up. And so when you get to the MCU and you get something like Chris Hemsworth and you can go, oh, I get it. That's Thor. And then you go read the comic. It's a little bit easier to translate. But for a lot, a, a long time, he, he, he existed. He did have as many, many followers but mm-hmm. when it came to sales, it wasn't as strong as things like Spider-Man or X-Men or anything Wolverine related. Like mm-hmm. you could put out Wolverine takes a nap and mm-hmm. spend 50 pages on it and it will sell well. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned MCU and, and there's a wonderful little chunk in this book where it talks about when Kenneth Branagh came to direct Thor. Mm-hmm. He thought it would be fun for Joe to do a cameo in the movie and Quoting from the manuscript here, I explained to Sir Kenneth that my face on screen would only send audiences fleeing, but he persisted. And so I was in wardrobe at a desert location east of Los Angeles. I thought I'd just be standing in a land, a bunch of guys as the camera drifted by. But Sir Kenneth decided against all evidence to the contrary that I could act. So the scene takes place after Thor's hammer has been thrown out of Asgard and craters into Earth. says, I want you to be the one who discovers the hammer, Sir Kenneth said, pointing to a red pickup truck. You're going to drive up, get out, and react to seeing the crater where the hammer is landed. You're then going to clamber down to the hammer and try to pick it up. Swell. As I did the scene, I hearkened back to the days I spent reading Thor comics at my aunt's house. Now here I was, years later, acting in a Thor movie based on my own material. I had disappeared into my own narrative. Could my life get any weirder? Why, yes, it could. I have to warn you folks, Becoming Superman is a wonderful read, but there's also a a really tough family story involved here. Joe had an incredibly abusive childhood, and the fact that he accomplished, accomplished so much professionally given what he went through in his childhood and, and actually given dealing with his father well into adulthood and the dark secret that gets revealed toward the tail end of the book. I mean, this is a tremendous page turner. It is a combination of an amazing behind the scenes entertainment book. And, and again, it's not just about Marvel. It's, it's, you know, Joe worked in animation. He wrote the, the real Ghostbusters animated series, He's written Academy Award-nominated films. Clint Eastwood's The Changeling is his. 
you know, and again, of course, we've do, we did talked earlier about Babylon Five. I can't say enough nice things about this book. In fact, I'm throwing this thing in the mail to Aaron tomorrow because I know he'll get such a huge kick out of it. And it's not just because of the Neil Gaiman stuff. This is a great, great, wonderfully entertaining book. Where and, and especially if you're somebody who's looking to make your living writing, it's there's a wonderful sort of a how-to aspect to this book that uh, you know about keeping at it and you know plugging away that's it makes it well worth reading and he is a big name for marvel and spider-man in in the uh timeline of when spidey mm-hmm. was doing well he's prominent in in part of that timeline of good spidey stories mm-hmm. no absolutely but again it's just his behind the scenes story is is just as compelling as anything he ever wrote for film, television, or comics. So, All right. Before we wrap up, I do have a first one retraction and mm-hmm. a, a, a couple of recommendations. The retraction is last episode. I mentioned that both Fantastic Four and X-Men comics were put on a hiatus for a short while, but mm-hmm. Michael Sarantino was the first to call me out for that. And uh, so I had to correct myself. Fantastic Four was canceled from 2015 through 2018. However, uh, the characters could appear in other books, but they just didn't have one of their own. The X-Men at that time were had the, a spotlight ectomy, a spotlight removal from them. So they had like a Marvel versus Capcom infinite video game where they swapped X-Men characters for Guardians of the Galaxy and other characters that are more prominent in the MCU. Uh, there were fewer X-Men Dark Phoenix toys on shelves than there are Avengers toys. So while the X-Men books were active, they were otherwise muzzled by Marvel in just about every other form. So there's the correction for that. And I want to say thanks to Michael for catching my error. You've been awarded 17 mud points. Mud points are only usable in bragging rights and have no cash value. Thank you for playing. Uh, uh-huh. no, moving on <laughs> to a couple recommendations. I figured since the MCU is going to have a little bit of a lull while we wait for Disney Plus to get going and for a new MCU movie to hit theaters all the way in May of next year, you may be craving some superhero entertainment. So to fill the gap very briefly on Netflix, there's the Umbrella Academy is about a group of orphans, each born on the exact same day, each with a different superpower, who are then all adopted by a very eccentric billionaire and raised to be heroes in the public eye. And what you need to know going in is that they're trying to stop the end of the world and things seem to only go downhill from there. It's dark, darker than anything in the MCU, but a lot of fun. And weird. Uh, it's it's one of those things where it either grabs you right away or it doesn't. So it's just odd enough to to catch my interest. I really, really enjoyed it. Plowed through the entire season one and cannot wait for season two. The uh, other thing I wanted to recommend is Amazon just released The Boys, which is imagine if the Justice League or the Avengers cared more about their public image than their results. So as a quick example, in one scene, we've got terrorists in an airplane. The heroes come in to save the day and very much on accident destroy the controls to the plane. And they know if if they save anyone and anyone survives the crash, the real story will come out that they goofed and accidentally caused the plane to crash. So instead, they let everybody die and then go to the media and tell them that due to government bureaucracy, they got there too late. The terrorists destroyed the plane and there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. 
it is a twisted, dark, evil, grim look at what we, if we had superheroes today, like they're trained to land in a power pose. So if someone's taken a picture of the fight, they always look cool. They know to have a catchphrase and say something when the cameras are rolling and give them the thumbs up pose and all that. So their Twitter trends go up and it it's just dark and it's fun and it's grimy and it's even more kind of filthy and gritty than uh, the Umbrella Academy is. So I really, really enjoyed that a lot because it's just so dark and twisted. To bring things full circle here, I want to say I was reading an interview. They've been doing the Television Critics Association every year. They, they do this sort of week-long event out in L.A. and the various, you know, the networks come forward and talk about their upcoming season. And Good Omens was Amazon, that's correct? Yes, that was Amazon Prime Video. Yeah. Okay. The gentleman for Amazon was on stage talking about how well it had been received. And evidently, they've had conversations with the authors about would it be possible to continue? Is there, a, you know, an, maybe another story here? So, I believe that Neil had mentioned. Well, because the the, the book came out several years ago. Terry Pratchett has since passed away, and mm-hmm. so it's only up to Neil if Neil wants to move forward with it right now. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't have his writing partner, there is a slight bit of hesitation. The fact that the the book came out and the TV show was made. That was his promise to Terry before Terry passed away was all Terry wanted was get good omens to the screen. Movie mm-hmm. or TV doesn't matter. Just get it to the screen. And, and Neil promised he would. So he did. It was well received and loved by the fans. And there's been a huge outpouring of adulation and love in Neil's direction for everything that he gave us in that. And right now he considers it done. And he knows that Amazon may be calling him and knocking about a sequel. And they did have some ideas for another book if they got around to writing it. It's just a matter of how close to completion is it? Does Neil want to tackle that? Does he have the time to hit a deadline so we don't have to wait 36 years for Good Omens Part <laughs> 2? I mean, because the guy is busy. He's, he's putting out a lot of material. And if he's not writing books, he's writing comics. If he's not writing comics, he's writing film and TV scripts and the same. Sandman thing is now, you know, going to be rolling forward, hopefully at Netflix, you know, with some news about that. So that's right. uh, I think everybody involved would like to have Neil involved with his number one property in the world, which is Sandman. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's so much to discuss. Tell you what, folks, if you would like to carry on this conversation any further, feel free to hit us up on Twitter at Jim Hill Media or at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. I think that's about all we can handle for one week, Jim. I agree. I agree, folks. So uh, why don't we fold this card table and move on? Okay, so <laughs> we do have some other podcasts here at Jim Hill Media. The Mothership Disney Dish with Len Testo. We have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Zahair. Please head on over to iTunes and rate and recommend this show. If you get out at a band camp and subscribe, well, again, that, that helps us keep the, the, the folding card table in good shape. So we'll talk again soon, folks, okay? Take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.